Well, welcome to this session on uh, is Shakespeare still relevant today? Uh, I guess we're hoping the answer is going to be yes. Uh, but even if it's no, that could be quite interesting. So we'll see. I'm going to introduce all four of our speakers to start off with in the order in which they're going to speak. Uh, first of all, Edward Wilson Lee, who is a fellow and lecturer in English at Sydney Sussex College here. Uh, he teaches medieval and Renaissance literature and Shakespeare. And he's recently published um, uh, an excellent book of literary history and travel writing entitled Shakespeare in Swahili Land. And Edward is currently working on his second book now on the age of exploration and print. And he was just telling me the central figure is going to be Columbus's bastard son. Uh, and our second speaker will be Dr. Preeti Taneja, who is a researcher, writer, and broadcaster, mainly on world literature, culture, Shakespeare, and human rights. She has an honorary fellowship at Jesus College, Cambridge here, and a Leverhulme Early Career Fellowship at Warwick University. As one of the BBC's new generation thinkers, she has presented live on Shakespeare's birthday and at this year's proms. Uh, she has a novella, Kum Kum Malhotra, which won the Gatehouse Press New Fictions Prize in 2015, and her debut novel, We That Are Young, a retelling of King Lear, set in contemporary India, is going to be published next year. Our third speaker will be Emma Whipday on my right here, who is uh, also a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at University College London, and a Globe Education Lecturer at Shakespeare's Globe. Previously, she's taught at King's College London and at Brasenose College Oxford and the Royal Centre School of Speech and Drama. She's published on Elizabethan True Crimes, Domestic Tragedy, Practices Research, and the Royal Shakespeare Company's Roaring Girls season a couple of years ago. Emma's also directed a number of Practice as Research productions of rarely staged early modern plays, including The Tragedy of Cleopatra, The Tragedy of Mary, and Ben Jonson's Mask of Queens. Emma is also a playwright, and her play Shakespeare's Sister was recently published by Samuel French and is going to be staged at the Blackfriars Theatre at the American Shakespeare Centre next February. Emma. Uh, and our fourth speaker then is Dr. Malcolm Cox. Yeah, who is a re postdoctoral research fellow in Shakespeare and global audiences at Shakespeare's Globe. Uh, Malcolm's research focuses primarily on the critical and methodological implications of intercultural Shakespeare performance, and he is particularly interested in performance and adaptation among grassroots theatre companies and their local communities in Africa and the Caribbean. Uh, over the last two years, as part of the events commemorating the 450th anniversary of Shakespeare's, uh, I always have to think, birth and 400th anniversary of his death, um, Shakespeare's Globe, uh, as some of you may know, toured a production of Hamlet to almost every country in the world. Malcolm was one of two researchers who travelled with the company to uh, nearly 30 countries in Africa, Europe and the Middle East. And his paper discusses the global reception of the Hamlet tour and its cultural politics. It will appear in a book entitled Guilty Creatures, World Hamlet and its Global Audiences, 
which he is co-authoring with Dr. Penelope Woods. So without more ado, each of our speakers is going to speak for about 10 minutes. Then we'll have that uh, kind of juncture where I throw it open and uh, you will be ready with your uh, questions and if not, I'll be ready with mine and then we'll have a conversation for the last half of the session. So first of all, Edward, please. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Adrian. Um, I have to admit, when I was first invited to speak on a panel about is Shakespeare still relevant, I was completely panic-stricken uh, by the word relevant, which sounded exactly like one of those traps that one sets for one's undergraduates. Uh, is Shakespeare still relevant? You let them run themselves out, uh, and then you point out that they haven't really thought about what the word relevant actually means. So I decided to spend some comforting time with the Oxford English Dictionary um, and to look up the word relevant. Uh, and it has a, a disputed etymology. There's nothing juicier than a split or disputed etymology. Uh, and one of, its, uh, one of the theories about where it comes from is the Latin relevans, which means legitimate. Uh, and the other, is, the other one is from uh, relevare, or it, which is to refresh or to relieve. And I actually think that this split etymology rather nicely illustrates the, the, chart, the, the path that's been charted by the question of Shakespeare's relevance uh, over the past century and a half or so. And one that's been captured for me in the work that I've been doing over the last couple of years and which has led to this book, Shakespeare in Swahili Land, uh, which is about this extraordinary impact uh, that Shakespeare had on the cultural and political life of Eastern Africa over the last 150 years. And it starts very much from that, I think, perspective of, of relevance as legitimization. So the story starts with the Victorian cartographic expeditions uh, who took uh, Shakespeare with them, usually as their only reading on these expeditions. Um, so here you've got uh, Captain Sir Richard Francis Burton, uh, who uh, took Shakespeare's complete works with him when uh, searching that great Victorian goal, searching for the, the source of the Nile uh, with John Hanning's speak, um, and uh, used the, the complete works not just as a kind of amulet to protect himself against the dark continent, but also to create ethnographic equivalences for, for local sayings that he was, um, he was finding, and... Uh, in a kind of crescendo in his relationship with John Hanning Speak, uh, when Speak had the unforgivable good luck to discover the source of the Nile on a separate side expedition of his own, reached for his Shakespeare uh, in order to express how he felt about Speak. Uh, so he, he quotes um, slightly strangely from, from the two gentlemen of Verona, and he says that Speak, uh, Speak's conviction was strong, but his reasoning was weak. Uh, his, he was... His, his ideas were of the nature of the damsel Lucetta in The Two Gentlemen of Verona, who says, I have no reason other than a woman's reason. I think it so because I think it so. So Burton, burning all of his bridges at once, uh, managing to wrap up uh, you know, misogyny and, and, uh, and throwing his friend under the bus uh, with a neat Shakespeare quotation. Actually, Two Gentlemen of Verona appears quite a lot in this story, um, and this confused me for ages until I, uh, I worked out that Probably the reason is that until uh, the 1980s, uh, Shakespeare's complete works tended to be printed uh, in the order that they were in the first folio, which went The Tempest and The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Uh, so I suspect that The Two Gentlemen of Verona benefited from a lot of valiant attempts to read their way through the, uh, through the complete works that foundered in the early pages. 
So anyway, all of the explorers take uh, Shakespeare with them. Um, uh, Roosevelt, uh, who is a kind of later figure in this, uh, in this story, uh, called Shakespeare the, the traveller's equivalent or the reader's equivalent of a soldier's ration, the greatest amount of sustenance in the smallest amount of space. So in one sense, they were taking Shakespeare with them because he was printed, you know, in these dense portable editions, two columns, thin paper. But of course, he was printed in those editions because his presence was considered necessary when you went out into the unknown. So he was this kind of legitimizing presence, right? Uh, in a way, uh, Shakespeare's immortality was proved by the fact that he could be carried into uh, the middle of nowhere and still mean the same thing. Uh, and similarly, I think there was a sense in which he was used to legitimize the, uh, you know, this ingress into other people's space. So my favorite of these stories um, is actually um, from Henry Morton Stanley, who you'll see here consulting uh, a map. Uh, here's a, a wonderful picture of him, which I'll talk about in a minute. Henry Morton Stanley was the ultimate Shakespeare on, uh, on safari expeditionary storyteller. Um, there's a wonderful story from his uh, 1877 uh, trip uh, in which, much like so much in, in Stanley's life, he, he accrued fame to himself sheerly through dumb luck, basically. So he went off again to try and find a more southerly source for the, uh, for the Nile, uh, ended up descending the Lualba River um, and uh, mistakenly doing the first full descent of the Congo River. Um, and when he gets to the, the West Coast, he sends uh, uh, a, a missive to his, his bosses at the New York Herald, um, and he tells them about an episode that happened uh, in what is the modern-day Democratic Republic of Congo, where he's confronted by angry natives uh, who consider him to be doing black magic because he's been seen writing. Uh, and Stanley says, I can't burn my expeditionary notebook, it's too important, but I do have this volume of Shakespeare. And he melodramatically narrates how he uh, allows the savage natives to burn his volume of Shakespeare. Innocent Shakespeare was consigned to the flames, and I gravely heaped the, uh, the brush fuel over him. Um, so here is Shakespeare, the man who is also word, entering the flames, innocent but enough to sate the devils. Now, like so much else in Stanley's life, the wonderful thing about this is it can be demonstrated that it's completely made up. <laughs> Stanley wasn't even born Henry Morton Stanley. He was born John Rowlands. Uh, he grew up in a, uh, in a workhouse in Wales. He invented the character of Henry Morton Stanley when fighting in the US Civil War on both sides. Um, and he'd made this story up. That, you know, from his expeditionary diaries, you can see that there are some of these things uh, that, that have some basis in, in things that happened. But he knew that in order for this story to work, Shakespeare had to be the sacrificial victim. And there's a rather insidious logic at work here, and it has to do with Shakespeare's relevance, Shakespeare's legitimacy. So the claim here, which I think is implicit, is that Shakespeare is universal, right? Uh, which means that his beauty must be recognised by all humans, and that if you do not recognise him, his beauty, you are, by extension, in some sense, not human. So the African continent, which refuses to absorb Shakespeare, which only wants to burn Shakespeare, has proved itself somehow subhuman uh, by its inability to absorb the Shakespearean universality. So there's Shakespeare as, as 
relevant, i.e. legitimate. He is somehow uh, legitimate himself and legitimizes other things. And I think if that's where the story ended, um, this would be a rather, rather kind of depressing story. But I think the segue from that into Shakespeare as relevant, as somehow uh, with a magical ability to be refreshed and to be relieved by being reread in different ways is, is the, the later part of Shakespeare's story in East Africa. Um, so Roosevelt travels into the dark continent bearing his Shakespeare. He's got a, a library which is with its own designated porter, um, bearing Shakespeare like an arc of culture into the, into the dark continent. But he's doing so um, going past Mombasa, which in the years that he was on his safari actually had more... Uh, Shakespeare productions in it than London's West End, right? These were not by uh, either European settlers or local East Africans, but by the Indians who came over to build the Uganda Railroad and brought with them their incredibly fresh, irreverent love of popular love of Shakespeare. And there are these wonderful productions, um, you know, which transport, uh, transport Hamlet to Mughal battlements. One of my favourites is... Um, is a Romeo and Juliet, which, um, spoiler alert if you haven't read the play, uh, in <laughs> instead of using a dagger at the end, she uses an asp, um, which transforms her into a kind of pseudo-Cleopatra. And I rather like to think that if uh, Juliet had lived uh, to, to, to have men after Romeo, she might have become a little bit like the feisty Cleopatra. Uh, so, you know, uh, the, I'm sure you'll be hearing about a lot of, uh, you know, these, these ways in which... Um, the story of Shakespeare in the last hundred years has been deplaced, uh, displaced, kind of recentered, uh, refreshed, um, and I'm certainly happy to talk about some of them in the. Um, in uh, sorry, this is a, a just a shot from a 1929 Nairobi production of uh, Kun Kakun, Blood Will Have Blood, a, a translation of Hamlet um, by Mahadi Hassan uh, uh, with the glorious, uh, glorious costumes. So. Um, Shakespeare, performed by uh, the Indian uh, railroad workers, uh, he then becomes central to East African independence. Uh, those of you who know your East African independence history will recognise here the figure of Milton Apollo Obote performing Julius Caesar at McCarrery in the 1940s. The McCarrery Shakespeare productions in the 1940s and early 50s are a roll call of the independence politicians uh, of East Africa, all of whom met and got their first public speaking opportunities in Shakespeare plays. He's also translated uh, by the first president of Tanzania, Julius Nyerere, in two astonishing translations of uh, The Merchant of Venice and Julius Caesar, undertaken during the very years when he was struggling for uh, Tanzanian independence and then writing its first constitutions and, and uh, developing its, its character as a country. So as I say, uh, I think a lot of these readings help to relieve, to refresh uh, Shakespeare in a way which helps that... Uh, legitimization to, to return to a certain extent after that first legitimate claim had been worn down uh, in the earlier part of the story. I'm going to rest there and uh, run back to my seat, but I'm happy to talk about things afterwards. Why is this so obvious? It's not because, or not only because of Shakespeare's universal appeal to aspects of shared humanity, a theory that I personally think does his work rather a bland injustice. Instead, it's because Shakespeare, whose work partly spread around the world with the spread of the English language under the British Empire, and later with the American dominance of mainstream global culture via free market capitalism, 
acts for me as a kind of key to reveal how the children of hybrid languages, literatures and cultures, if you like, have been traumatised by their duality, but also learned to voice it. And as a matter of strength, to answer back, but also with Shakespeare, and to map the ways in which colonial power has left its imprint on the nation states it shaped, to show a world which might otherwise take no notice that forgotten conflicts are still alive, still affecting people. In this way, Shakespeare, through the eyes of others, has great relevance, speaking directly to issues of human rights, the right to freedom of movement, freedom of speech, to worship, to mother tongue language, and the right which frames my own academic research, the freedom to participate in cultural life. To research my book, which is called We That Are Young, I travel to New Delhi and Kashmir because for me, Kashmir is the state in which more than any other, the trauma of partition for which the British Empire is as responsible as the Indian and Pakistani states continues to have violent effect. It was early 2012, before the election of India's current right-wing Hindu Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. To give a very basic bit of background to this situation, and apologies to those of you who are experts in this field, um, when India and Pakistan became two countries in 1947, each princely state in the subcontinent had to accede their peoples to centralised governance. The power balance in Kashmir, which straddles the border, was a majority Muslim population ruled by Hindu Maharajas who signed the state over to India. Cue the start of a conflict that has seen hundreds of young men disappeared as they fight for azad, or freedom, independence, as sanctions were imposed by India and the state was militarised with checkpoints and curfews as the population was terrorised by the Indian army and became terrorist in return by joining Pakistani-led resistance. This is a state in which women whose husbands are gone are known as half-widows and who remain vulnerable in a deeply patriarchal system without the protections of being married. And, of course, where the influence on the British, of the British on the Indian state is built into the DNA of the army and the legal system. This means that laws that are designed to suppress the natives under empire still work for India in Kashmir against the population there. And what, you might ask, does this have to do with Shakespeare? Now, when you think about lost fathers, sons who might be seeking a cause, half-widows, and states in turmoil, another Shakespeare play springs to mind, Hamlet. For Kashmiris, the ex existential question of to be or not to be is one of psychosocial and geographical freedom, allegiance, and self-expression it is indeed a life or death question. The Vishal Bhardwaj, director of the internationally critically acclaimed Shakespeare adaptation Heather, um, which you can see in my hand here, um, Hamlet was the play that could best express the ravages of history and conflict on the state of Kashmir. Using Shakespeare through the lens of first-hand testimony, combined with the might of Bollywood and an instinctively auteur sensibility, Heather takes on Hamlet's question and uses it to reveal the plight of a people whose lives remain blighted by a war that started almost 70 years ago as the British quit India. Now, I'm going to show you a tiny clip of the film um, and then just talk about what it's trying to con convey here. So I'll hand it to you. Can you help me do that? 
So there are several moments I want to pick out here. The young man acting a role inside a state where nothing is what it seems. His use of hybrid language, English, Hindu and Urdu, Hindustani, which references his tripartite cultural influences. Note that here, English is the language of officialdom. Then there is his traumatized gibberish that rhymes law and order with border the critique of the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, which gives the Indian Army impunity to act in Kashmir, but was put in place by the British when they were in power. There's a reference also to the United Nations, the Geneva Convention, and the Indian Constitution, 
which cannot agree on the actual existence of the Kashmiri state and therefore of its people. But there is more subtext here. In the process of making the Shakespeare into a film set in such territory, we have a young man being driven mad by the laws he has to live under, inciting a crowd to cry out for some kind of freedom. A gathering which, in reality, is illegal under the sanctions the Indian state imposed in the 1990s, a fact which Heather seeks to, seeks to obfusk by singing Sare Jehan Se Acha, or Better Than the Whole World, one of the official national patriotic songs of India used in many official events. Now, it's very difficult for me to describe to you um, the impact this film had on me when I first saw it. Because the truth is that under the current administration, there is absolutely no way that this film would have got past the Indian censors, let alone be made at all. And I've had that directly from the director's mouth. And I'm sorry to say that in recent months, the people of Kashmir have found themselves under siege again. Burhan Bani, a header, if you will, in real life, uh, was 15 when he left home following a brutal encounter with Indian security forces. He became a Hizbul Mujhadi leader and something of a social media and local legend as he managed to survive against high odds. He was killed earlier this year, sparking protests and mourning across the state. India has cracked down under Modi's right-wing Hindu banner, using pellet guns at close range that blind, maim and kill. Reports have emerged of security forces stopping ambulances carrying the wounded. The valley has once again been under curfew for over 100 days at the time when I was writing this talk, and the Muslim leaders in Kashmir responded by ordering the shutdown of shops and services. So you've got these very, you've got these people who have got this conflict that's been ongoing for this amount of time, caught between these political um, and economic factors. As 2016, the Shakespeare commemoration year draws to a close, and India considers its 70th anniversary of independence in 2017, the question of what freedom really is to these beleaguered people has never been more crucial. For those still wondering whether Shakespeare is still relevant today, I urge you to watch Heather, see how Hamlet speaks to the past, present, and future of this conflict, how it tackles that to be or not to be question, and then decide for yourselves. It's more than the people of Kashmir can do, though um, for some were able to take part as extras in Bardwaja's <coughs> film, the cinemas in the state itself have been closed for, 70, for over 20 years, repurposed for the Indian Army as lookout points or stores, so they can't actually watch this film in their own country. So this is a film that breaks this silencing, and as the conflict cycles around again, it's even more relevant in the global context than when it was first released only two years ago. Thanks. So I'm going to focus on theatrical practice, both what practice can tell us about Shakespeare and how Shakespeare continues to, perform, to inform theatrical practice today, and I'm going to do so through a couple of very specific examples. I'm going to begin by talking about a recent workshop I ran at the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse at Shakespeare's Globe with Dr. Sarah Lewis, and then I'm going to discuss Shakespeare in my own creative practice and in giving you a personal account of how Shakespeare remains relevant to me, I'm going to suggest some of the ways he might be relevant more widely. 
by using reconstructed performance spaces that have only recently been made available, like the reconstructed indoor Sam Wanamaker Playhouse. We're still learning new things about Shakespeare's plays, unlikely as it may seem, because we have new tools with which to approach them. In our Research in Action workshop, Sarah and I worked with actors, directors, and with the audience via audience questionnaires to explore what the space, which is based on an archetypal Jacobean theatre, could tell us about the knocking at the gate scene in Macbeth. In 1823, Thomas de Quincey observed, the knocking at the gate which succeeds to the murder of Duncan produced to my feelings an effect for which I could never, never could account. The effect was that it reflected back upon the murderer a peculiar awfulness and a depth of solemnity. De Quincey is suggesting that an offstage sound effect, the knock, can alter our sense of the imaginative world that's portrayed on stage. We wanted to see if 200 years after De Quincey's comment, we could explore how some of the original performance conditions might have contributed to this sense of peculiar awfulness, which when moments after the Macbeths have murdered King Duncan in his bedchamber, they hear a knocking at the castle gates. Whence is that knocking, says Macbeth? How is it with me when every noise appalls me? What hands are here? Ha, they pluck out mine eyes. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hands? No, this my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. Lady Macbeth enters and says, My hands are of your colour, but I shame to wear a heart so white. I hear a knocking at the south entry. Retire we to our chamber. A little water clears us of this deed. How easy is it then? Your constancy hath left you unattended. Hark, more knocking. We wanted to explore the relationship in this scene and in some others between what occurs on stage and off stage and to examine the role that sound effects play in helping actors to imagine the world that's being created on stage extend back behind the tiring house, beyond the doors. So we wanted to explore the extent to which off-stage sound effects explore, um, play a dual role for audience members. So they help the audience members to imagine the imaginary world off-stage. Duncan's bedchamber, where the murder's taken place, which we never see but keep hearing about, and the, cast, the other rooms of the castle and Scotland beyond. But how they also direct the audience's attention to the realities of the playhouse, the tiring house, where the actors change and where the sound is coming from and where actors like Macduff are waiting, who play characters like Macduff, are waiting to enter. The responses to our workshop suggested that our audience shared De Quincey's sense of the knocking at the gates in Macbeth. Some said that it makes you visualize the threat of discovery, and that the real noise, after all the discussion of the imagined noises at night in the castle, is shocking as the awake world disturbs the action inside the castle, which had been dark and secretive. Audience members identified the knocking as coming from the south entry, because Lady Macbeth identifies the source for us. We explored how Macbeth cannot immediately identify the location of the knock. Whence is that knocking, he asks. But while he does not consciously recognize the knock as belonging to visitors who may discover the crime, he unconsciously forges the link between the knock and the significance of the blood on his hands, blood that will prove his guilt. In contrast, the knock prompts Lady Macbeth to recognize the necessity for immediate removal of the evidence. 
The knock uses what we, the audience, imagine about the world off stage to reflect back onto the world on stage, on Lady Macbeth's desire for concealment and Macbeth's discovery of the indelible nature of his guilt. We experimented with locations for the knock, allowing us to think further about the way the text interacts with the practicalities of the theatrical conditions Shakespeare had in mind when writing. And of course, we couldn't reach any definitive answers about where in the early modern playhouse the knock might have been and whether it was further away when the knock was coming from outside the castle and then closer when it's coming from the, the gates in the porter scene and it's on the back of the stage doors. But just in asking these questions and playing with the space gave us, made us pay a new attention to how the theatrical realities are intersecting with the implied instructions that Shakespeare is giving in the text. So practice-based research at the Globe and other reconstructed playhouses around the world informs new research into Shakespeare's plays. But do Shakespeare's plays in turn um, inform creative practice? Well, I work on staging early modern plays that are rarely performed to illuminate Shakespeare's place in the wider theatrical culture. One example of this is a colleague, Yasmin Arshad at UCL, recently discovered a photograph of a portrait, a portrait which really frustratingly was lost sometime in the early 20th century, but the, the photograph remains. And it appears to be a record of a Jacobean noblewoman dressed as Cleopatra holding an asp with lines from a play called Samuel Daniels, The Tragedy of Cleopatra, um, displayed next to her. Now, the tragedy of Cleopatra was a closet drama, which usually means plays are written to be read rather than performed. And it was an important source for Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, but Samuel Daniel actually rewrote it in response to Antony and Cleopatra as he was influenced by it and published it again in a text that seems a lot more alert to performance and seems to imply movement and stage directions in the way that the first didn't, which suggests that this portrait might have been a, a record of a country house performance where the noblewoman, Lady Anne Clifford, could have played the role of Cleopatra. There's a lot of conjecture there. We don't have any definite absolute records. Sadly, she kept a diary, but not quite in the right period, so we can't know for certain. But what it does offer, along with other evidence, is a tantalizing glimpse of the possibility that women were amateur performers in early modern England. And the picture we have of an all-male theatre while it's definitely true of the professional stage, might be a little bit more complex when we look elsewhere, and particularly within the elite world of country houses. We were interested in exploring this, so we staged a practice res as research production of the tragedy of Cleopatra, um, recreating potential original performance conditions as much as we were able and as much as we could afford, because of course a country house performance would have had resources to draw upon that we could not. We were interested in the extent to which our production could illuminate a hidden history of female performance. And I'm happy to say more about this production if you have any questions later. This encounter with evidence of forgotten or lost female performers inspired me in how I approach Shakespeare in my own creative practice. In A Room of One's Own, Virginia Woolf suggests, let me imagine, since the facts are so hard to come by, what would have happened had Shakespeare had a wonderfully gifted sister called Judith, let us say? And she decides it would have been impossible completely and entirely for any woman to have written the plays of Shakespeare in the age of Shakespeare. But in suggesting this, she tells a story. Wolfe's version of Judith Shakespeare runs away to London to write plays, but the men of the theatre laugh in her face. She has an affair with an actor, becomes pregnant by him, and kills herself. 
Wolfe's words and the lost portrait inspired me to write Shakespeare's sister, a play where I imagine a very different fate for Judith Shakespeare. Drawing on, to, in, on the research into female writers and performers that I and many, many other academics have done, I wanted to challenge the isolation of Wolfe's female Shakespeare, who runs away alone and is never able to put on a play. In my Shakespeare's sister, Judith has written a play in secret and runs away to London to sell it, but because no one at the theatre will buy it, Judith hopes to stage it with the women who work in the in adjoining brothel that's next to the theatre. Judith attempts to persuade the daughter of the theatre manager, who's also the brothel madam, to perform in it. And she says to her, you can never stand upon a stage. No one will pay a single coin to see you play. And why? Because you cannot play at crying. I've seen you turn on the tears many a time when the whorehouse customers cut up rough. Because you cannot be heard. When you raise your voice, half the tavern comes running. Because you wouldn't look well on the stage. Why, you've twice the grace of a skinny boy player and a woman's face with it. You're barred from the boards because of your sex. We can neither do what we dream of when the theatres are open and the players are here. Why not join together and make a play in secret now that the players have gone? So as you'll see from this very short extract, Shakespeare's sister is an example of how practice as research has increased my knowledge of Shakespeare and research into Shakespeare and the world he lives in has in turn shaped my own creative practice. It arises from a desire like that of Wolfe to construct a heritage for myself of female writers and performers that stretches as far back as the line of male geniuses who shape how we think about literary and dramatic history. Tom Stoppard and Mark Norman's award-winning Shakespeare in Love affects how many people imagine the early modern world. Indeed, I have to admit, it had a very formative effect on how I imagine it even now. I love the film, but the only women who exist in its version of the theatrical world are the nameless prostitutes who are the spectators of Romeo and Juliet and are silent and moved by it, a lusty seamstress who's passed around among the men of the company, Viola de Lesseps, who you see here, who cross-dresses as a boy to be an actor, but must then return as a woman to her elite and sheltered world, and Elizabeth I, who is a female patron and is played by Judi Dench, is of course exceptional, but she's the only exception. In this world, women exist as sexual objects or to enable or appreciate men's genius. As you can see here, Shakespeare is being inspired. It is the men who ultimately are the theater. And this, this image, I think, sums up very nicely the prevailing historical narrative of Shakespeare's England. Because of the huge effect that Shakespeare has had and continues to have on our culture, I think the stories we tell about him are significant. They shape our view of how he fits into our past. And I hope my play can, in a small way, challenge the narrative of early modern performance history as men only, just as current exciting productions that are gender-blind, cross-cast, and all-female of Shakespeare's plays, such as Phila Deloitte's current trilogy set in a female prison for the Dommar, and reimagine how we can approach his work. Shakespeare's sister will be staged at the American Shakespeare Center in Stanton, Virginia, in a reconstructed play Blackfriars Playhouse, so it'll sit aside alongside other plays in rep that are research productions of early modern plays, Shakespeare's included. So I'm hoping it can offer an alternative vision of theatrical history by giving a glimpse of the private, unrecorded performances by women. So this has been a very personal account, but it maybe gives a little sense of why I believe that practice can help us to understand Shakespeare, and Shakespeare in turn can inspire new stories about the past.
<coughs> so between uh, 2014 and 2016, to commemorate the 450th and 400th anniversaries of Shakespeare's death and birth, um, as many of you know, the Globe um, sent a tour um, of Hamlet um, around the world, uh, you know, sensibly to every country in the world. So, you know, no theatre company had uh, sort of attempted such a project before, and um, it represents an extraordinary feat of logistics, human labour, and cost. And what actually went around the world was a small-scale production of Hamlet, uh, 12 actors and four stage managers, and um, intermittently two audience researchers, myself and Penelope Woods, who's, who's not here today, but uh, who contributes to this work. So that's a, a sort of photograph of the company, um, but what also went around the world was um, a kind of rather larger scale um, ideology. So Shakespeare's Globe uh, kind of very effectively um, exploited um, the theatre's reputation as a unique sort of cultural site and the unique cultural purchase of Shakespeare. So on the one hand, uh, Shakespeare is a brand. Um, it's a global exchange commodity um, through infrastructures of empire, pedagogy, translation, etc., it's kind of achieved this um, immense cultural purchase. Um, and I want to come back to that because I think that's also a situation that uh, grassroots theatre companies have in their turn been able to exploit um, quite usefully and quite, quite uniquely. Um, and on the other hand, Shakespeare's Globe is perceived as a site of historical authenticity and cultural authority, a, a place of origins, so one story, one way of telling the story of this tour might be to look at it as uh, a kind of act of Western cultural imperialism, uh, a kind of with a neo-imperialistic impulse to take something from a centre in London um, around the world. And that's a kind of narrative that, and an account that needs to be told. Um, but my sort of um, perspective, my, my sort of take on it today in thinking about the relevance of Shakespeare is to slightly flip that um, on its side and shift the focus from the centres of production to the multiple centres of reception and allow the audiences to tell the story of the tour and to think through the tour and its implications through their eyes. And I think a very different sense of its relevance and significance emerges, which possibly exceeds the scope imagined by those who produced it. Um, and this is really what was so exciting for me as an audience researcher was discovering the play and discovering the meanings of the play and the significance of the play through the eyes of audiences in all the different locations. You never quite knew what people would find or make of the play. Um, so I think sort of um, in order to, to do that, in order to tell that story, I need to talk a little bit about the methodologies and then hopefully um, share a little bit um, just a sort of fraction of what audiences uh, made and found in the play. So I sort of, the, 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 the title of the, the talk and indeed the title of my book, Guilty Creatures, comes from these lines. I've heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have by the very cunning of the scene been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. And I think this is kind of at the heart of audience research and the heart of the tour is implicating the audiences, their, their sort of guilt, uh, if you like, their complicity in the meaning-making, in the process of making meanings. So um, this just shows you where, where Penn and I went. 
Um, these are the sort of countries where we conducted audience research. Um, I think there are 39, 40 countries in total. And I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some of the methodologies that we used. So we took very sort of, so I, I think sort of, yeah, 40, 49 countries, 1,200 individual responses. So there are 1,200 people who partook in the audience research project, which makes it quite significant and gives us some insights. And I'll talk about the different ways that we were collecting information and how we were using the information. But we took very seriously the responsibility uh, and the opportunity to situate as far as possible audience response within a, a kind of wider ethnography of the host or audience community. So, you know, ethnographical research usually implies and ideally requires a much more embedded and much longer-term relationship with host communities than the logistical strengths of this tour allowed. Um, it was quite radically contingent in, in the fact that we were moving on every three or four days. <coughs> but this did force us to be quite creative and to maximise opportunities, however ad hoc and contingent, to adapt our methodologies. So we usually began research before arrival. Um, I would contact universities and try and get uh, research um, associates uh, to help collect the information and do the interviews on the day. Um, we draw on networks, academic ones uh, or informal ones. Um, we begin conversations before we arrived. Um, we'd sort of cold call. When we arrived, we'd buy newspapers. Um, we'd research performances and go and see them if we had the time. Um, we would invite audience members uh, to participate in the research, and we used social media and Twitter. Um, I even used um, a dating app for quite a, long t quite a lot of the time to recruit research volunteers. So it'd be sort of set up as a date. If you come along and watch this play, you'll get some free tickets, and um, as long as you agree sort of to talk to me or help me out with the, with the research. So it was that, that sort of range of things. Um, and... So this idea of, a, of kind of ethnography and embeddedness is quite important, however sort of quickly that was taking place. Um, so one of the sort of things that we did were, were video interviews. Uh, we, we kind of gathered uh, data through a lot of ad hoc methods. Um, these were improvised and sometimes unplanned. Um, we practically engaged audiences, and that slide that you saw with sort of Roosh, there's this, this idea that when people are being filmed, paradoxically, they can be more spontaneous and can be more revealing once you get them to relax. Um, and it also meant that we could host their audience response as a conversation, uh, despite the sort of fact of the camera rolling. So we're very much part of a conversation uh, where we would sort of talk and have a chat about what people were seeing. <coughs> and the idea there was to sort of shrink the traditional distance and the unequal relationship between an ethnographer and a subject, particularly one who sort of seems to represent... Uh, a kind of university in the West, uh, if you was, or, uh, or the Globe Theatre. And the idea was that these would be collective and participatory. Um, the second sort of methodology we used were, were these uh, audience surveys, uh, that slide that you can sort of see. Um, there were two types. There were longer ones for s that were sort of targeted towards people who would be part of focus groups, and then there were shorter ones which were given out to audience members ad hoc. Um, asking them to sort of do work. And so that's just a sort of picture of the kinds of ways that they could respond to this. And this was really useful because we could give out lots of these and it sort of meant that we had lots of information and lots of data on similar, similar responses um, with, with, you know, sort of really interesting uh, comparative results. Um, 
the third sort of methodology that we used was to, uh, as I said, to recruit local volunteers who um, I would train very briefly, uh, sort of an hour or two before the performance, um, in terms of how to conduct the research. And they would have dictaphones, and they could take the, um, the they could do the research in, in a local language if need be, or in English. And then very kindly, they often uh, sort of agreed to translate those back um, for us into English. So these were usually university students who were uh, on some program, either drama students or departmental students, or people that had come from the, the dating app, or sort of people who were just lurking around the, the audience theater. So anyone could sort of do that. And it was quite useful to have the perspective and compare how people responded or spoke to locals rather than sort of foreigners who were coming in asking about what they'd seen. So the thing about this was that it asked people to do lots of work, lots of imaginative work, um, and to articulate their ideas. And I sort of sometimes felt guilty about this, but actually, I think, retrospectively, um, people enjoy the opportunity to talk about what they've seen. It's one of the impulses. It's one of the things that sort of makes theatre going social. Um, and it's um, really central to our methodology, which is really positing conversation as a, a kind of way to make um, or to sort of discover the relevance of of sort of Shakespeare. Okay, so uh, I came across this phrase, and it sort of seems to me uh, the, the best description of um, what Shakespeare's relevance might be to these, uh, to sort of audience members witnessing this this play. Um, the playable surface. This is um, the the playwright and director Suleiman Al Bassam, and an interview with Margaret Litvin, um, and he talks about. Um, he's a sort of Kuwaiti playwright. Uh, he sort of what he means by this is that you know Shakespeare is a slippery and sometimes perilous, but eminently useful um, surface, uh, eminently useful medium for a number of things. And I just very quickly want to point out what some of those are. So, despite unequal power relationships, I think that Shakespeare uh, in performance provides access to centres of power. It's both global and local, so it reimagines knowledge. Um, not as, a, not as a, a, a sort of movement from a center to, uh, to a periphery, but as a cultural exchange. Um, and it puts into practice uh, this idea of Ngugi Watianga's global ethics, where we kind of think of multiple networks um, rather than a sort of one-directional flow, um, you know, a complex shimmer of exchange and conversation. Um, I think that the second thing is that, and most importantly, it opens up an intercultural ground Performance itself is an intercultural exchange and negotiation that takes place through conversations. So uh, an encounter between the host community and the travelling company in which both mutually decide what the performance must mean. It's an act of collaboration. The meanings were radically different uh, from venue to venue and from place to place from the ways that we may traditionally read Hamlet, for example. Uh, more of that in a moment. There are also conversations between audience members with the researchers so the audience research itself was a site or a practice of intercultural exchange, and often the work is done or the meaning crystallizes in conversation as people are articulating what the play means. Um, so several of these are also group conversations, so we extend engagement and performative element beyond the last curtain call. And these continue. There are still people who are writing to us and writing to the company um, by email and on social media, and there's, a, there's an afterlife of the plane that happens not just conversationally but in terms of practice. So there's an effect on uh, practice. Okay, 
So I think that um, two, two more sort of elements here which are more related to my own work than to, to this tour, but this idea of performance as a space for communal and self-reflection. So audiences as the legislators of what things mean and who determine uh, the meanings as a community. So there's individual responses, but through things like laughter uh, and through those sort of communal responses, there's also a sense in which audiences at every point are deciding what's important and what play means to them. And if you're fortunate enough to have conversations with them afterwards, you can follow up on those things. Um, finally, lots of the grassroots theatres I work with exploit the global currency of Shakespeare to gain visibility. Um, it helps them to secure funding. Um, it helps them to uh, engage in collaboration. Um, so, for example, there's a new theatre in Tanzania that started off by the full staff who was at the 2012 Globe Cultural Olympiad. Um, who, who, who I kind of reconnected with when we were on tour in Tanzania. But his whole idea of um, a new practice uh, was partly inspired by that experience. Um, there was a Mozambican hamlet that was prepared just before we arrived in Maputo um, and revived just before the Globe performed their hamlet um, in order to coincide with that. And a lot of people who'd been at the Mozambican uh, performance also came to see the Globe's performance and they were really useful discussions. Um, a similar thing happened with the Nepali Hamlet. So there's a whole sort of concatenation of events surrounding that. Um, I think that sort of just to conclude before I run over time, um, I've, I've been sort of insisting that we look at uh, and attend to the distinctive voices of audiences. <laughs> so I'm just going to play in this clip.
So we've got uh, about half an hour for uh, discussion, and there are a couple of mics, I think, uh, which can roam around. Uh, and if you do have questions, then ask the mic just while we're settling then. Um, so I was, I was struck listening to um, Edwards um, delving into the OED about uh, relevance. <laughs> Um, and it struck me that the, that the idea of renewable energy was actually present in uh, the second one that you, you came up with. And that's always struck me as uh, uh, one of the things about Shakespeare, that, that there's this extraordinary renewable energy in these plays. But it is variable. Uh, and Preeti made the very good point, I think, about the blandness of, uh, you know, a kind of blanket idea of Shakespeare's universalism, when actually what we've been listening to here is very, very particular kinds of encounter and confrontation and engagement at different points in time and history uh, and culture. And, of course, um, Shakespeare's plays are not universally popular. Uh, Henry V has never gone down well in France. <laughs> one, one can't think why. <laughs> uh, <coughs> Many of the tragedies seem to translate and move across borders more easily than the, than the comedies, and so on and so forth. 150 years ago, our Victorian ancestors loved King John. It was on the whole time, Henry VIII too, and now it's a bit of a rarity by comparison. Uh, Troilus and Cressida rediscovered in the 20th century after virtually no stage history at all, up and, and so on and so on and so on. So I think it's really wonderful to be reminded how absolutely specific performance makes these encounters between uh, text, uh, speaking from the past, but in different ways to us now. Anyway, I'm burbling on here while we collect ourselves and ready ourselves for questions. First here, thank you. If you just wait a moment while the microphone dashes down to you. Yeah, yes. Thank you. Yes, uh, the question I have is related to what is in Shakespeare, that is universal, when I was listening to all of you, what it is. And, um, and they, they, well, maybe it, it, an answer is, is a way of being, a way of expressing, uh, because it, or a way of interpreting a, interpreting a reality. Because it seemed that is, it could be in, uh, adapted to any culture. It could be because it could say things that you might, you feel it, but you say, oh, but you could not say it. So okay, thank you very much. Yes, okay, I'll, I'll just burble for a moment while our panellists uh, collect themselves. Uh, I was struck by the idea of storytelling that uh, you brought up very well. Uh, one of the best-selling never-out-of-print books uh, is Shakespeare, uh, 
the Lambs, Charles and Mary Lambs, Tales from Shakespeare, Tales from Shakespeare. No other author one, that one can think of. Tales from Milton? I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> Tales from Ben Jonson? No, no, no. There is something about storytelling that seems, at least in some of, the, some of these places, not all of them, but some of them, why Hamlet? I mean, Hamlet is the choice, obviously, for the world tour. But why exactly is it? Is it something to do with storytelling? Would be one answer. What about the panellists? It's an interesting question, um, which I sort of want to answer in a couple of different ways. I liked your idea about interpreting reality, because I think then you're getting beyond a few sticking points, and one of those is obviously the text itself. So when we're precious about Shakespeare's text in the language it was written in, then you're sort of sticking yourself inside a box, and it's very difficult to understand things like Indian Shakespeare or Spanish Shakespeare or German Shakespeare. Um, but when you watch all of these interpretations that come from different parts of the world, and even silent Shakespeare, so what happens to the text when you're watching a black and white film where there's absolutely no speaking whatsoever, and yet it is an absolutely true version of Hamlet? What is that truth that that person has, has got there through being silent? Um, directors and, and playwrights and so on that I've spoken to say, say something about the malleability of, of the plays, not in the sense that, you know, they express some kind of universal human emotion that we all share, and it's all the same in all cultures, everywhere, all the time, um, you know, which just blanketly covers over something to do with how important those moments are in various different ways, which I think Malcolm picked up on um, two different people. But what is it about Shakespeare that speaks across all of ages? For me, I think the answer is in that sense that no matter what's going on, um, the play is already always telling its audience something about how a future could be. So you've got all of these people striving in this world, whether it's in Swahili or it's in Hindi or it's in no words whatsoever, um, working to against their social systems. And I think that's something that tra really does translate. Thank you. R r uh, yes, let's not have everybody answer every question, otherwise we'll be here all night. Uh, but if any of the rest of you want to comment, or should we have another question? Um, I have to jump yes, okay, in. let Emma jump in and then we'll move on. Oh, my, my, oh yours doesn't work, sorry. Uh, um, so, yeah, I, I, I thought that was yeah, really interesting in terms of the, the malleability of, of the text and, and that sense that, yeah, there are these potential futures almost composed in the text. I tend to look at it from a slightly different angle, but coming to a similar point about the, the fact that Shakespeare tends to get inside these really knotty problems that obviously are culturally specific in one sense and belong to a particular time and, and place, but that are transferable to other places and other cultures because everywhere is grappling with a version of these problems. So the, the example I tend to think of is the way that Othello, um, it could be read in terms of a relationship between a marriage and the outside world and what happens when there's domestic violence within a marriage and there is or isn't the intervention of the outside world because Othello publicly strikes Desdemona and people see and don't intervene and then later he murders her. And that's obviously just one tiny thread of, of the play, but quite an interesting one because whatever the specific situation in a, in a time or place, and I think it definitely still resonates sort of here today, the question of when do you intervene in someone else's private space or private sphere, and when should the community or the state or the neighbourhood or law come into a home 
is something that applies wherever there are homes and wherever there are communities, even if it's culturally specific and different in each. And that's just a really ex specific example, but I feel like that's true of so many of Shakespeare's plays in terms of the issues they sort of get inside. Thank you very much. Another question? Yes, in the middle there, please. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I take the parallel that you've just mentioned about Othello, but I'm just wondering if Shakespeare is so relevant today, whether the panellists have a view as to whether any of the comedies or tragedies best link with some of today's issues, like USA presidential elections, <laughs> Brexit, or leadership of the Labour Party. Um, I'll hand over to Malcolm but just in a moment, but uh, can I direct your attention to a wonderful piece by Stephen Greenblatt, great uh, Shakespearean scholar in the uh, New York Times a few days ago, where he re-describes Richard III without mentioning explicitly anything about the contemporary world, addressing the question, supposing a playwright in the 1590s uh, thought about writing a play with the question, how do we end up with a head of state who is a sociopath? <laughs> and he just re-describes the play without saying anything. And I won't say anything anymore, but hand over to Malcolm for that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I'm not sure that I, I could sort of specifically um, answer each of those, those points, uh, sort of Labour government and Brexit and so forth. But I, I definitely think that... Um, with my own work, you can map certain plays uh, to certain times and regions, and they sort of lend themselves to those situations. So recurrently, and in terms of most popular, and I don't know if, if, if sort of Edward Prime is the same thing, but um, looking at, uh, talking to people in, in uh, on this audience research project uh, regionally, the, the most popularly and most watched play uh, and the most loved play um, this is sort of just a question that we had on our survey was, was Romeo and Juliet um, and that has partly to do with its history and sort of school syllabuses but um, outside of that it was Julius Caesar uh, in Africa in East Africa and Macbeth in Southern Africa so I don't yet know what, the, what kind of that, that data means and at different times but I think obviously um, the, the sort of ideas of political conflict um, lend themselves to those um, performances quite well. And I think that the sort of plays are quite, um, are quite porous. And this is coming back to that idea of universality and why they can be um, put to so many different uses, if we, if we like that, is that, that there is a sort of porousness in the ways that stories are told and in the ways that debates are hosted. Um, and I think one of the other things is their appeal to audiences. You know, Hamlet starts with a question, who's there? Which is as much about uh, what's going on in this sort of internal story as it is about who's attending and what they bring with them. So I think that those meanings are always a, a result of um, the, the sort of context and the times of the audiences. Um, and sometimes those those contexts are more important than the, the kind of what the, the sort of people mounting the production intend or think that the play might mean. So sorry, I've slightly avoided 
some very specific questions with a general answer. Edwin. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would echo Malcolm in terms of long-term relevance, I think, tends to cluster around. I found Merchant of Venice, um, uh, Julius Caesar, things that have kind of parable-like, so coming back to this idea of storytelling structures. Um, in terms of topical relevance, I have played this game in a number of these uh, talks I've done recently about, you know, uh, Brexit and, and Donald Trump. I think people were far too uh, generous to the Brexiteers in comparing them to Macbeth. Uh, <laughs> for, me, for me, your Brexit play is Henry VI, <clears throat> in which a group of incompetent nobodies ruin the country and it goes on for far too long. Um, and Donald Trump, yeah, and I think, you know, uh, my, my, immediate, my immediate reaction was bottom, in that uh, <laughs> if you think about the contrast between um, the, the man himself and, and some of the unfortunate, um, unfortunate amorous partners that uh, have been tricked into, uh, in, into having his paws all over them, or hooves all over them, uh, I, I think that bottom. But I think more seriously, Richard III is, is a good comparison, because I think there is something at the heart of um, uh, that in America and also in, in Britain today, uh, this dramatic formula in which uh, this seeming, you know, the, the presentation as an outsider, the seeming lack of desire for power is in itself a qualification for power. So both Richard III and Julius Caesar, the two tyrants, you know, two of Shakespeare's tyrants, stage scenes in which they are offered the crown and they repeatedly push it from them, right? With this, uh, which is this kind of sacral performance that I don't want power and therefore I somehow deserve it. And of course, that's central to this, you know, to this claim that, uh, you know, that, that Trump is making, that I'm a simple, honest, common man. I'm not someone who's been in there, you know, desperate, clinging, you know, clawing at power my whole life the way Clinton has, and therefore, somehow, paradoxically, I deserve the power. So I think, I think Richard III is a good... Is a good Thank um, you very much. Good we one. have another question at the back there, please. Yes. This is perhaps more a comment than a question, but um, I was thinking about the universality of Shakespeare's appeal, and I was thinking that paradoxically, one of the things I think that allows Shakespeare to be constantly reinterpreted through the entire performing history is the fact that he was writing at a specific time in the early modern theatre before you got to... Um, much more specific staging, such as, you know, if he'd been writing 100 years later, he'd have been writing for proscenium arch theatres, much more specific scenery and so on. So he was writing at a time when he said, now we're in France, and we're in France. And that's part of the reason which allows um, his place to be constantly reinter reinterpreted and uh, placed wherever you want. So it, the fact that he was writing then um, means that they're constantly open to reinterpretation in a way that they might not have been had he been writing at a different time in, in stage history, as it were. That sounds like something that Emma or Malcolm might want to respond to or perhaps just agree with. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I yeah. disagree. I think, I think yeah. that's true that they're very dramaturgically flexible and he's obviously yeah, playing with the, sort of the bare boards and the, the language. I think he does make really specific use of particular stage features so obviously the, the upper stage, the balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet, very famously, but and the, and the stage doors and that particular audience actor relationship that's possible in the shared lighting of theatres like that. But I think you're right in that those things are very easily transferable and reimaginable. So yes, I, I agree, definitely. Um, 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think you're right. They are very transferable, and that sort of emptiness, the flat stage of the heath and so on, it's very suggestible. But I think what I was trying to pick out a little bit was also the social and political currents that brought Shakespeare to places like India. <coughs> and they weren't necessarily just to do with literary genius. They were to do with political um, colonization. They were to do with teaching language um, and culture and civilizing natives, you know, very famous quote, which I'm sure people know, a single shelf of a good European li library is worth all of the literature of Indian Arabia, which was the taken from the Indian Minister on in, um, Education in the British Parliament in 1835, I think it was. And, you know, that was a policy. So Shakespeare comes with elites, it's disseminated, um, and then it begins to be translated by and taught as a kind of rule in universities and schools to Indian elites who then translate it for the people who are, you know, less well-off than they are. So it becomes this thing where to do Shakespeare in that context is a question of showing how civilised you can be, but also then it becomes something that becomes hybridised and songs get introduced and it becomes part of film culture and then it becomes much more fluid and, and exciting things perhaps for the reasons that you've suggested. And just to pick up that, that last point, not to devalue the first point that Preeti was making, but about hybridization and so on, um, it, it's also true, of course, that Shakespeare's texts are not fixed in the way that, uh, say, with Racine in the uh, court of Louis XIV in uh, a few decades later, you can't change a, a, a Racine line, whereas Shakespeare's lines are all over the place. You can do anything with them, you know, choose this text or that text, and forget a line here, and you can't do that with Racine or with Beckett, for that matter. So, absolutely right, you know, very different kinds of possibility that are being provided. And another question. Got a few more minutes? Yes, over there first, and then there. Um, I think my question is for Preeti specifically with this. Um, I was reading your piece in The Guardian about the performance of Romeo and Juliet between the Jordanian refugee camp and Homs in Syria, and I was wondering if you had a comment about um, the experience of the performers in the community and how they felt about performing Shakespeare's works, who seems perhaps very distant from their like troubles at that moment, and how you could speak about that. Okay, so um, for those for those of you who haven't read that very very buried piece on the Guardian Theatre blog, blog um, my academic research looks at Shakespeare productions that take place in conflict and post-conflict zones, and for the last couple of years, I've been travelling around to different parts of the world. Um, where people are making Shakespeare on the ground um, in response, in their own languages and in response to what they're dealing with. So it isn't the same as the Globe taking a play as a travelling company around the world. It's very much from the ground up. And this particular production was a performance of Romeo and Juliet in Jordan and Syria, and it was Skyped between the two countries um, after three months of rehearsals where the director, who is Jordan, a Syrian, refugee in Jordan. He's an actor-director called Nawar Bulbul, and he has worked um, with children who have been um, evacuated from Syria to Jordan because they've lost limbs, they've lost families, etc., etc., and children who are still stuck in Homs, which is very much under siege. So they are risking their lives every day for three hours to gather in this house in Homs you know, bullet fire in the background, which I could hear for myself when I was able to Skype with them, um, to rehearse Romeo and Juliet. And they did this rehearsal process for three months, and then finally this, um, this play was performed in this attic of a hospice in Amman, 
um, with the Skype screen set up. So we could see Homs and they could see us through a digital technology. And your question was about why Romeo and Juliet and what it kind of meant to them to do Shakespeare. Now, I think for the children themselves, it was more the act of being actors. It was more the production process that really changed um, the sense that they were part of a war and gave them that imaginative space where they could become players. So, you know, the, the Homs the Homs group were very much in a kind of regurgitate. It, it was a living room um, which they had dressed up to look like the house of um, the, the Juliet's family, and they were all in masks. It looks very kind of Renaissance costuming, but of course it also protects their identities from being um, worked out by the Assad regime because they're all be always being watched as well. Um, so for them to do that, there was a sort of escapism there. For them to do Romeo and Juliet connects with um, a sort of romantic story which they've, all, they've been told through family and friends. For Noir, the director, he went to drama school in Syria um, in a very, very high-cultured environment. So he studied Shakespeare along with Brecht and Stanislavski and all of the great Chekhov and you know, all of the Arabic playwrights as well. This was, a, this was a country of beauty and culture which he has brought with him and it sort of travels with him. Um, to watch them do it was simultaneously like soul-destroying and utterly uplifting. Um, to watch them do Romeo and Juliet, they change the end, they dash the poison on the ground, the two children don't die, um, they cry out, you know, we want to live like human beings. Um, and that really was how they <coughs> changed their, their Shakespeare. Thank you, wonderful story. Uh, yeah. So next. question about language I guess which someone did touch on briefly which was some people are very precious about the language of Shakespeare and there is one school of thought which is not mine that if you adapt and lose the language and translate and in some senses simplify that you have lost somehow the essence of Shakespeare whereas the other argument is that the essence of Shakespeare is the storytelling and the issues um so in that respect, it doesn't matter if you, where you place it and the language that you use. I just wondered if any of you have sort of views on that. Who wants to go first? Edward. I, yeah, I'm not, I think, you know, um, echo what has been said before. I think there is this a sense that, you know, poetry is what's lost in translation is a form of, of linguistic protectionism, essentially. That's, uh, you know, saying that only, only British Shakespeare can be, can be real Shakespeare. You know, obviously, um, things are changed in translation that isn't necessarily lost. Uh, but also, you, you know, you're talking about at, at the level of individual word choice. I mean, one of the ways that um, I like to think about this, uh, again, um, a couple of lines from Henry VI where um, Joan of La Pucelle, Joan of Arc, says, Glory is like a circle in the waters that never ceases to expand itself till with broad spreading it dispersed to naught. Right? Gorgeous metaphor. As far as I know, pebbles and water do pretty much the same thing all over the world. So when you go beyond the immediate structures of word choice, uh, the larger metaphorical structures, there's no reason why that, that, that should be lost. And I think... Um, you know, one of the, to a certain extent, comes back to this question of you know universality and um, uh, that we've been talking about in this panel. 
and the question of where that universality would be lodged. So I think if we were having this panel 200 years ago, you'd all be dressed very differently. Um, but uh, you know that there would be an acceptance that that uh, universality would be lodged in some kind of um, some kind of metaphysical sphere. So again, here with sort of different senses of the word aesthetic, so that somewhere God's inspiration, nature um, would would give uh, the underwriting for that aesthetic universal. Because I think one of the really th interesting things that came out of a lot of the different um, talks today was the the move of that aesthetic. Um, to the more, you know, the other sense of the aesthetic, which is senses, the body, you know, people experiencing things. They're kind of physical senses which have a, you know, which have a universality. And I think this is one of the ways in which literary studies is returning to ideas of, if not quite a universal, at least something that might be more shared experience through the idea of the somatic and through the idea of, which of course, you know, can be, can be different around the world, but, but at least provides a slightly different from the metaphysical way of thinking about shared experience. So I think the somatic experience was, was sort of a nice way to tie that together. Uh, I think sort of just to, just to add to that, I think we're, we're kind of in a, in, a, in a sort of period where um, I think that the texts exist less and less as sort of in, in language, if you like. So certainly thinking about some of the, the smaller grassroots companies I work with who have access uh, to the internet, to a range of performances. Um, and one of the benefits of the kind of branding of Shakespeare and its sort of circulation as a, as a commodity is that people have access to it all over the world and uh, the opportunity to intervene in those stories or those narratives, which are kind of shared stories or narratives, become, become more important. And then to have your, your interpretation or your production sort of change the possible meanings for, for that play as it kind of enters that circuit, if that makes sense. So, uh, you know, a lot of people will, will pick and with a, with a total disregard. So the Mozambican Hamlet that I was telling you about was translated by a Swedish playwright into Portuguese. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's a whole kind of refraction of the play that still worked marvelously well as a storytelling and was still understood by the audience and by the players as an important intervention which then may speak back to different hamlets and they they were kind of looking and thinking about the performance history of the, the play both kind of uh, very recent and more uh, classical thank you last question um, i just have a question about uh, what shakespeare couldn't say possibly i just wonder if you, any of you had a, a view on that the sort of the unsayable that shakespeare couldn't quite fit in and um, whether that's also relevant when, when Shakespeare's in translation or in these other places, how can, can you use the idea of the unsayable in Shakespeare? Well, that's a, it's always fatal to say last question because it turns out to be the really tricky one. Uh, anybody want to hazard a response to that? I think there's two, a few different ways of taking that question as well. Like with what he... What he says about the unsayable, for me, obviously, with the work I do on King Lear, the idea of nothing and what comes from saying nothing, saying the word nothing, or actually being silent, you know, that whole exploration is there in the text, so, you know, you can have a look at that, but what doesn't he say? I think that's a really good question. I've never been asked that. What doesn't he say? What couldn't he say? Who he was? <laughs> we, we're still debating that one. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I, I think you, you were talking about the idea of the future very interestingly, and, and that is, and this is going to be a closing kind of gambit here, uh, that one of the things that Shakespeare seemed to provide is this sense of, of the unsayable or the not yet said that lies in the future and that uh, where we're talking about women speaking to women and women in Shakespeare being able to speak now as they were not 200 years ago or 300 years ago. Uh, it's not that it's infinite, but there is so much potential in these plays for the future. And I'm going to call it a day there. Thank you very much to our speakers.